I'm Seattle Times political reporter Jim Bruner. And I'm Seattle Times City Hall reporter Dan Beekman. Let's talk politics. Welcome to episode 23 of The Overcast, the Seattle Times weekly politics podcast. This week, we're joined by Seattle City Council member Rob Johnson and Matt Fox, a university district activist, longtime city activist. And they're debating the big proposed upzone of the university district, which would create uh, big, much taller buildings in that area. is quite controversial. It's going to be voted on by the city council soon. But first, we'll do this week's winners and losers in politics. Dan, I think you have a winner. Well, this week's winner could be Seattle Mayor Ed Murray. He announced this week that the city has a site to open a homeless navigation center. This is the special 24-hour, seven-day-a-week homeless shelter um, that has a lot of unique features. It allows people to bring their partners' pets and possessions in. Uh, There's low low barriers to entry, which means... um, there are a few rules and restrictions about uh, being there. You can come and leave as you please. There are showers. There are laundry okay. facilities. Uh, and this is based off of a San Francisco model. And it's is it a win, win for Ed Murray because it's something that he's promised for a while? Yeah. Ever since, well, last June, he first said that Seattle was going to do this, taking uh, following the lead of San Francisco. And he said it's a really important piece of the city's effort to address homelessness because the center will be designed to take groups of people from the unauthorized homeless encampments that have popped up all around the city and then move them quickly into permanent housing. It's really designed for people who are really having a hard time on the street. Um, but you, you also, uh, I think, are going to award loser in the same category here. Who's, who, why is that, Dan? Who's the loser? Well, you know, we just talked about Murray promising to do this uh, last June, and at the time he said the goal was to have a navigation center open in Seattle by the end of 2016. It's not open yet, and what he said this week when in announcing this site, which is in the Little Saigon part of the uh, Chinatown International District, is that now uh, renovations need to be done to the building. And the plan is to open to a limited number of people, maybe not all the people that the center will eventually serve sometime in the spring. He didn't even give a particular date. He just said spring. So that will be, you know, several mm-hmm. months okay, uh, so, behind schedule. So, so a little bit of uh, backsliding on what he originally said, but moving ahead. Exactly. Okay. We're here with uh, Seattle City Council Member Rob Johnson, who chairs the council's land use committee and represents District 4, which includes the University District, and with Matt Fox, president of the U District Community Council. He's a longtime activist in that neighborhood and the director of operations at a homeless shelter in the University District. And we're here to talk uh, about the proposed University District upzone. Uh, This is a proposal that's before the Seattle City Council right now and uh, Councilmember Johnson's committee that would, uh, you know, the simplest way maybe to describe it, it would allow taller buildings uh, in the university district, especially around the uh, light rail station that's set to open there on Brooklyn and 43rd uh, in 2021. Um, 
And so let's just hear from, from the both of you what you think uh, as a baseline about this proposal. And Matt, why don't we start with you? Well, about five years ago, um, while I was, I was still working where I work now, um, the Chamber of Commerce had submitted a grant application to the Department, uh, City Department of Economic Development. And the City Department of Economic Development, along with the Planning Department, took what was a pretty modest economic development proposal for the U District community or for the University District and sees that as an opportunity to totally rewrite the neighborhood plan. And so the plan that we're looking at now really is largely funded by and driven by both the University of Washington, who own a number of properties they want to build high-rise office buildings on around the Safeco building they purchased where next to light rail station is going to be, and really the city planning department. And so what we're looking at now really flows from, from that initiative. And we are greatly concerned that it will displace existing affordable housing, the kind of mix of eclectic, family-owned, locally-owned businesses that the University District now has, and um, really is an overreaction uh, to growth management and also to the presence of light rail station, which we already did upzone for. It's just the light rail station's coming 15 years late, but we already did upzone around the whole area for that. Okay, so just to summarize, uh, you're worried about displacement, uh, by re by new development and that could be encouraged by the upzone and um, uh, you think this is about the proposal is about the UW and uh, high-rise office buildings um, primarily that's that's really what's been driving it to okay. now okay uh, high-rise high-rise housing is not something we have as much of an issue with it's more the office development and the high-tech development okay. that we think will thanks the and and council member uh, you uh, uh, are an advocate for um, this legislation, the upzone, and um, tell us what you think about it. Sure. Um, you know, we took a vote out of our uh, planning, land use, and zoning committee meeting on Tuesday morning. So the legislation goes to full council uh, in a couple of weeks, so the Tuesday right after President's Day. And the thing I'm most proud of is that this is the culmination of five years of community input. We had nearly 100 community meetings on the topic. And I think that the idea of building more housing and more dense development around a light rail station is very consistent with Seattle's values. The um, folks that I talk to in the neighborhood are very concerned about environmental sustainability. And our largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in our city comes from transportation. So the more we can get people out of their cars, the better uh, we can do to preserve our natural environment. A lot of folks in the neighborhood are also concerned about uh, social justice issues. and spending a lot of time and energy locating housing by light rail is shown to be one of the best determiners to get people out of poverty and into the middle class. And then finally, I would just say, you know, we're, uh, I'm a fifth generation Seattleite. The Capitol Hill that my great grandmother moved to in the late 1800s is very different from the Capitol Hill today. And we're in a circumstance where we're seeing 40 people move here per day and we're only adding about 12 housing units per day. That's contributing to economic eviction and, and, and a lot of folks in the neighborhood that are already being priced out. From my perspective, this proposal allows us to build taller buildings, yes, but also allows us to build a whole lot more affordable housing in the neighborhood too. What about, Matt mentioned that there had already been an upzone associated with light rail, if I heard you right. Correct. Matt. There was a so, pretty significant increase to uh, MR65 all through the neighborhood. And in case you've noticed, there are a few new buildings in the U District. For our podcast listeners who might not know what MR65 is, <laughs> and for me, what is it? Well, it's actually, and I got that wrong anyway, it's neighborhood commercial 65 foot zone. So what, the upzone were, okay. you know, one and two story older affordable apartment buildings. And there has been an enormous amount of development in the University District. We've already met or exceeded all of our previous 
previous planning goals, right. um, and all around a light rail station that is uh, coming a little late as we go. So, Councilman, though, what, what about that? What about was that previous rezone enough, or was it too long ago and it needed to be updated, yeah. or how do those work together? Yeah, that, those zoning changes that the uh, city adopted were in the late 90s, 1998, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, we're almost 20 years later. Um, as Matt mentioned, we've seen a lot of growth in the neighborhood, but uh, the biggest difference between those zoning changes and today is the program that we've implemented alongside these zoning changes. It's called our Mandatory Housing Affordability Program. And that program requires every new development to build affordable housing on site or pay into a city fund to build affordable housing. Many of those new buildings that are going in there today are market rate housing. They don't have an affordability element to it. And this zoning change allows for the city to make sure that every new development makes those contributions that we're not getting in today's development cycle. And it's important to note, though, that mandatory housing affordability, which the U District Community Council generally supports, we think that the affordability levels for the rental subsidized rental units should be lower. Median income is rising rapidly, so 60% of what median income is today still doesn't get at what's affordable to the people who work in shops, the people who uh, home care assistants, folks who work at UW Medical Center. But more importantly, mandatory housing affordability guarantees none of these units would be built necessarily in the neighborhood and replace the ones that are there now. By allowing the fee-in-lieu system, this could all be funded out in Southeast Seattle or any other part of North Seattle, Lake City, areas that are more affordable to build in, but it does not guarantee affordability by the light rail station. I think it's a real disservice to people to say that it does, because it doesn't guarantee that, and they've written nothing in the zoning to ensure that. Uh, council member, I think at the uh, meeting that you had with your committee uh, this week where you voted out um, the legislation to the full council, there was some language added or at least contemplated that had to do with that, trying to uh, keep the affordable housing being built with the developer fees in the neighborhood. As I remember, the language that was discussed it wouldn't make that a requirement. It was something less than that, but it had to do with that. That's right. There are um, um, all of this. All of these zoning changes relate to an overall framework that we developed to implement mandatory housing affordability. And that framework asks the city to set some goals around where we build affordable housing and what type of affordable housing uh, we're going to build. And the uh, language that we added to the bill on Tuesday reaffirms that commitment. Uh, Matt is right. We uh, don't require the Office of Housing to build housing in the neighborhood, but the Office of Housing has an incredible track record of building a lot of affordable housing in high-cost areas and in medium-cost areas, places like Capitol Hill, the Central District, and the University District. We've got two projects underway right now, and one that just opened in the University District for very low-income folks. And my expectation is that we're gonna see a lot more of that development happening in the University District alongside of buildings that are gonna to choose to build those affordable housing units on site. The reason why we ask for either or, either payments into a fund to build affordable housing or what we call performance on site, is because that payment option allows us to leverage state and federal funds to actually build more affordable housing than we would have otherwise gotten just by forcing the developer to build it on site. So I think that we're trying something really groundbreaking here. A lot of other cities are looking at Seattle's approach and we've got some time in place where we're going to be reviewing how we're doing against our goal of building 6,000 new units in the next 10 years. And I think it's a really important Let system. me just jump in here because, um, you know, one of the pieces of context for this is that the U-District upzone is something that has been contemplated for, I think, about five years or something like that, that uh, 
so for quite a while. But now, uh, more recently, the city has started talking about doing up zones in neighborhoods across the city and many other neighborhoods as part of this new mandatory housing affordability program where developers get some more space to build and then are required to contribute to help create affordable housing. And so um, this is sort of the first of many up zones that are going to be considered in the next couple of years here. And there are sort of two narratives, sort of extreme narratives you hear out there from people who are critical of up zones on the most extreme side it might sound something like um we're people who care about our neighborhood our great neighborhoods and we're trying to protect them from greedy developers and on the other side the other extreme you hear we need to build um more uh we need to do up zones because we the city needs more housing and if you're critical of that in in any way you know, you're trying to keep people out of Seattle or, or keep people from from living in Seattle. Do you guys think that um, there is some middle ground in there? And if so, what is it? Or maybe those are appropriate ways to one of those is an appropriate rate, way to frame it. But that's how people are talking about the U district zone. And I suspect that's how people are going to be talking about these other up zones for in the coming Council, years. Councilman, didn't you say something about people want to wall off? Use the term wall, which then I saw just somebody say, you know, that's offensive, Trump-like language. Is the rhetoric getting too heated? No, I think that there is a middle ground, and I think we demonstrated a, a good middle ground approach to that in the university district. The a plan, as it was originally sent down to us, included some zoning changes on the AV University Way itself. We worked a lot with local business owners to understand their concerns around what was happening uh, to the AV and, and uh, hit pause on those zoning changes. So we, I think, can find a way to continue to respond to community concerns as they're coming up. You know, the, the question I think before us is, you know, we're a city that really does believe that we're welcoming for people of all income levels, of all races, regardless of your nationality. We've stood up for those values. We also need to make sure that we're building housing for all those folks. And I think that there's a, a real uh, desire for a lot of neighborhoods to have input. We're setting up processes and have already been out in a lot of neighborhoods to get their feedback about proposed zoning changes. And this is going to be a multi-year process. And, and I think that there is a middle ground, absolutely, and I think we're working hard to find it. I think to the extent that the city looks for input, it really only listens to the people that agree with the city. And, you know, Councilmember Johnson referenced five years of meetings. Well, five years of meetings were basically attended by the same small group of people, most of whom have time to attend awkward daytime meetings. As with the previous Chamber of Commerce, the current U-District partnership is really dominated by major property owners, the University of Washington, and a few large businesses, and small business owners only became aware of this stuff later, which is why uh, Councilmember Johnson and the Council have experienced a lot of the pushback they have around the AVUP zone, which for, I think, political reasons, and I'm not gonna question that, I think it's great that that's been delayed. I think that's important to a lot of people. I think a larger question, though, is, uh, this whole language of walling off neighborhoods, you know, I think it's interesting because Seattle has gotten wider and the east side has gotten, turned, Bellevue is now majority minority. And I think the idea that single family zoning is somehow racist, which I have heard Councilmember Johnson say, is really sort of an insult, frankly, to all the people of color who are moving out to the east side because that's where the single family houses are. I think this, the idea that the form itself is somehow racist is kind of absurd. I think it's a slur. I think it's designed to marginalize people who have real questions about what happens when 
you effectively, with HALA, the original proposal would have effectively duplexed and triplexed single-family zones. That creates a market for developers that will drive up prices on single-family homes because they can go and build three new ones. HALA, of course, is the mayor's Housing Affordability and Livability Advisory Committee. It, it was lots of recommendations. One of the most important recommendations that came out of that was this this mandatory housing affordability program with the developers contributing. But Councilmember Johnson, uh, you know, I think a lot of people in Seattle are having this conversation right now, and and maybe a lot of people can kind of understand where both of you are coming from on this. Um, Anything else you can add to sort of try to illuminate this this discussion about the best way to make Seattle a place where where working people and, and people without a lot of money can live and all kinds of people can live? I think it's really important to understand the history of how we got to where we are with this, the Seattle's zoning map as it is today. You know, I, I am not ascribing, um, as Matt has said, um, any single-family homeowner as racist. Uh, I have never called any single-family homeowner racist. Um, But I think it's important for people to understand that we have a history in this city that redlined folks from being able to live in particular neighborhoods. And then when that was found, based on a lot of work that our community did to open up fair housing, um, we then changed a lot of those racial covenants. We removed those racial covenants, which was an important step but we kept a lot of the zoning in place. And with those single family zones that we have in the city, in effect, kept a lot of folks from being able to move into those neighborhoods. You look at a neighborhood like um, the Central District or Madison Miller, places that in the uh, 1990 census were majority African American, and you look at them now and they're not a majority African American anymore. That speaks to, I think, the change and the gentrification that is happening in the city. And I also think it speaks to the need for us to build more housing for more folks so that we can continue to find affordable places for people to live. Listen, fundamentally, the zoning changes that we're contemplating in the future uh, change uh, about 6% of the total single-family zoning into something different than single-family. We're preserving the overwhelming majority of single-family in the city. But the ones that we're changing are nearby parks, nearby great transit, nearby schools. And those are places where we want more people to live. Okay, and we're getting a little bit far afield from the U District up zone here. I just wanted to sort of give people some context. You know, the conversation that's happening around the U District up zone is to a certain extent likely to continue uh, all the rest of this year and next year uh, with these other up zones. I'd like to bring one piece of broader context back, though, which is that we already have adequate zone capacity in this city to meet and exceed our zoning, our growth goals into the foreseeable future. That being said, I am in favor of incentive zoning that is used to create more affordable housing. I think that's great, but I think details matter. And the proposal we're looking at in the U District, the details are not in favor of what's gonna ultimately be or remain an affordable, diverse neighborhood. It will create more of a monoculture, a South Lake Union kind of high-tech neighborhood. And when you speak, you know, you look at South Lake Union, there was a lot of talk that, you know, doing tech development down here would somehow help address sprawl. the single occupant vehicle usage rates in South Lake Union rival those of the farthest flung parts of the city. So transit use down here is lousy. That'll probably be somewhat better by the Udistic Light Rail Station. But the idea that a UW tech spec tech building as the best highest public use of a, a space above a tran- public transit station is pretty absurd. And we still are waiting for the city to keep all the promises it made when we did the first up zone for light rail. And um, we have no faith that 
well, the future, the current well, what, batch of premises. What promises are you referring to? There was to? supposed to be, among other things, they were going to preserve parking requirements, which have been eliminated entirely. Uh, for those of us who remember the neighborhood plan effort, the neighborhood plan would not have gone forward had the city not promised to preserve parking in your sure. district. Because if you ask the average again, these, person, these are neighborhood plans like in the '90s, right? I mean, there was a big neighborhood movement down the city. Well, it was based on the idea that the light just, rail was going to open in 2005. Right. <laughs> Things change, though. I mean, don't, don't, do you recognize Seattle's become such a hot economy? So many people moving here that maybe referring back to these mid '90s well, just, plans, I think, to isn't, people isn't necessarily relevant. I think a deal is often a deal, though, and I think the city, from the, the moment the ink was dry on the last deal, wasn't keeping its promises. For example, looking at the current plan. So right now, among the proposals are to allow on a, the development or the OPCD, the, the acronym keeps changing, the Office of Planning and Community Development, now will be able to allow the University of Washington to build brand new big skyscrapers and not have loading docks at the director's discretion. So the moment the UW wants something, that promise that somehow we're not going to have to feel the effects of major trucks unloading on the streets, around a light rail station, in a crowded neighborhood. This is, you know, in the city or in the district right now, Brooklyn has been closed for months. A lane of Brooklyn has been closed for months. A lane of Roosevelt and the access over to the west has been closed for months. World-class cities don't do this. World-class cities don't close sidewalks for months on ends and what externalize if, the cost of development. What about council member? You do go around this city and you see it's very difficult to go anywhere, including this neighborhood, without wondering if there's any planning going on with regard to um, making sure or managing the, the the closure of streets. So is the city is the city monitoring this enough? You know, are you, what are you going to do? One of the things that we have, uh, going to adopt alongside the zoning changes in the university district as a companion resolution that sets forth a vision for the kind of infrastructure investments we want to see in the neighborhood. And those kinds of uh, infrastructure investments around parks, around open space, around childcare, those are the kinds of uh, things that we need to make investments in as a city if we're going to densify neighborhoods. And in a neighborhood like the U District, where we've got 20% of people that drive to the university district every day and 80% walk, bike, or take transit. We're going to see those numbers even increase as we open up the light rail station. So there's not years. really an effort to uh, mitigate anything for for traffic or cars, or is there? No. Are, are cars sort of the thing of the past? You is know, what uh, you were saying? we you know we heard we heard concerns in the neighborhood about parking, and we responded to those concerns by in this uh, legislation mandating that developers that build new buildings that are going to contribute to an excess of parking in the neighborhood have to provide a management plan to reduce the number of people that drive to their buildings. That's the first of its kind in the city and I think in the country. We're also pushing really hard on infrastructure concurrency. So the number 44 bus, which is a pretty slow bus, but runs east-west between Ballard and the University District, is a bus that we're gonna need improvements on to get people to and from that light rail station to make sure we seamlessly integrate between our bus system and light rail. These are the kinds of things we're working with the community on and we've got five years before the light rail station opens and it gives us time to make sure that we're working hard to get them done. So Washington State already has a Commute Trip Reduction Act um, and including for major employers, including for major employers probably in South Lake Union and at the UW, UW does a pretty good job of that, I will happily admit. That being said, we still have a lot of promises that were never kept from the last set of growth. We're so, still way deficient on open space. There's no concrete plan to provide any kind of centralized open space. It's all pie in the sky. So let me let me just to kind of bring us to a close here. And you know, I always try to remember that uh, a lot of readers or listeners in this case um, don't know that much about the finer points of zoning, and to some extent don't care. Maybe we can say have each of you sort of describe what you see the U District 
looking like in 2021 when the light rail station is is coming online uh, if this upzone goes through and, and again the city council is going to vote on it later this month it sounds like well, I think if this is adopted as proposed it will look a lot like the worst aspects of the southwest campus with the new soviet style dormitories that all of my neighbors uh, vociferously complained about campus parkway um, all the water views have been blocked from roosevelt for example it'll look a lot like south lake union it'll look like a monoculture of upscale high-tech um, sort of high-income people the low-income people and the, the there's a a livability partnership uh, done by SEIU, the service employees were quite concerned with what the University of Washington is proposing in terms of its innovation district in that all the people who work at the UW hospital and now commute from Federal Way will wind up having to commute farther or more of them will have to commute from Federal Way. They will not be able to afford to live in the neighborhood. Um, and notwithstanding the notion that light rail is going to solve everyone's problems, you can't get trucks in and out of the neighborhood. And, you know, even high tech people need someone to bring them their office chair. And I think all of these things are overlooked in what's kind of a pie in the sky planners view of really planning for what they want people to do instead of what people really will do. So I think you know it's really important for us to continue to preserve a lot of the community assets that the communities identified are critical to the success and vibrancy of the university district. That includes things like the farmer's market. We need to make sure that the farmer's market continues to have a place for people to be able to gather. It, it means places like the University Heights uh, Community Center. It means preservation of legacy businesses on the app. It means working hard to, to provide the kinds of open space that Matt and others in the neighborhood have advocated for. And that includes a plan to pedestrianize 43rd between the light rail station and campus. And in my hope, pedestrianize the entire of the AB so that we allow for just buses and pedestrians on the AB as opposed to a whole lot of uh, car traffic and conflict that you see today. From my perspective, the, the neighborhood is changing. When I knocked on doors in the neighborhood in 2015 and then again in 2016, I heard from a lot of people that were seeing rents increase, and that's without zoning changes. I've seen a lot of businesses turn over in the neighborhood in the last couple of years in a good economy and without zoning changes. The kind of actions that we're taking as a city, I think are gonna help mitigate those loss of businesses and those losses of residents by putting real dollars into the hands of small businesses so they can stay in the neighborhood and building real affordable housing so that folks who live in the neighborhood can stay there too. Thank you for joining us. A glimpse of the future and the votes coming up. Two o'clock on February 21st. Thanks a lot. Thanks to you both. That's a wrap for episode 23 of The Overcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Matt Fox and Rob Johnson for joining us. And be sure to reach out to us. Let us know what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at dbeekman at jim underscore bruner. Email us at seattletimesovercast at gmail.com. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 206-464-8778. Remember to subscribe and review uh, the podcast on iTunes. You can also listen on TuneIn, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and whatever else you use to listen to podcasts. So until next week, have a cloudy day.